6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jude, verse 6. Life in Eden is quite different than you and I have any capacity to imagine because Adam walked with God, he was clothed with light, he was in a dimensionality that none of us have any concept of. Prior to sin and prior to the curse, the whole situation is so different that there's no reasonable way to communicate it to us. Also, even after the fall, from Adam through Noah, we have a whole different lifestyle. People lived for hundreds of years. Noah built this uh, barge in his driveway for 120 years. You can imagine what the neighbors thought. Now, what's interesting about the sons of God and the daughters of men thing is that that idea is embodied in the Greek mythology. Now, we all know what we all run into from time, depending on how interested you are in the classics, you have had varying degrees of exposure to the so-called demigods, right? And... Um, one of the most interesting guys are the so-called titans. You've heard that we use the term titan, usually meaning large, right? Like a missile or something. Titans are partly heavenly, partly earthly in their origin. They are reputed in Greek mythology to have rebelled against their father Uranus, king of heaven. And after a prolonged contest, they were finally defeated by Zeus. And they were thrown into a prison called Tartarus. Now, something kind of interesting, Titan is the Greek term that the Chaldean term is Shaitan, which is the Chaldean for the Hebrew Satan. So even in the mythology and legends of our classical, you know, cultural roots, we have veiled remembrances of a time when some strange things are going on on the earth before the flood, and were at least in part caused for the flood. Why? Satan's strategy again. How is man going to be delivered by the seed of the woman? What's his shot at this? To contaminate the human race so there are no pure humans left to be heir to the title deed. So in Revelation chapter 5, when there's one in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written within and without and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And no man in heaven was found worthy to open the book. Had to be a man, had to be an heir to Adam. Suppose there were no pure heirs to Adam. John says, I sobbed convulsively because no man was found able. And the elder said to me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. Open the book. He turned and he saw the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ had to be man. Now, it's really interesting when you study the genealogies of Jesus Christ in Matthew and in Luke. You have two genealogies. Luke goes from Adam because he's a, he's a physician. He goes from Adam all the way through to David, and down from David through Mary. Matthew, being a Levi, is interested as the son of Abraham. He starts with Abraham, goes down through David, through Solomon, the royal line, all the way down to Joseph, who has the legal title to the throne of David. 
But back in Jeconiah's day, and we co- I won't cover this all in detail, but some of you know that in Jeconiah's day, who was in the royal line, God cursed the royal line, put a blood curse on Jeconiah and all his descendants. And I have the view from what I know about Scripture that in that day in the councils of Satan there was rejoicing. He thought, aha, now he got him. Because there's, there's a blood curse on the royal line. And when we get down to Jesus Christ, we find that he is the legal son of, but not the flesh son of Joseph who carries that blood curse. But when you study the genealogies carefully, you discover when they get to David, they take a detour. Matthews goes down the legal line that has heir to the throne. The Luke goes down the through Nathan, another son of David, to Mary. So Jesus Christ was of the house and lineage of David, but in a way that makes him legally entitled, but not subject to the blood curse. So when again and again, as you study the scripture, you find Satan plotting and God outsmarting every step of the way. But the more you study the scripture, the more you become fascinated with God's methodology and how, how clever he is. But you also recognize that every detail fits into a plan. Every name, every number, every detail of these 66 books is woven tightly by a super engineer. And it's, it's, just, it's just incredible. And that, that, I find that exciting. Okay, I, uh, we might, uh, I did, let's, let's take a look at Second Peter. I think we did look at that already, but I want to make sure you're... Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell... Now, that's kind of strange because Satan has all kinds of fallen angels doing all kinds of things, but they're not bound. And these angels did something very, they broke some deeper rules, and so got, they got cast down to Tartarus. And it's interesting that the same Greek word is used there as occurs in the literature that deals with the titans and all of mythology, same word. And delivered them into the chains of darkness to be served in judgment. Notice what Peter goes on. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, hang, uh, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And, and then it goes on with Sodom and Gomorrah, etc., etc. So clearly, what Peter is talking about is something that is familiar to his readers, as familiar as the flood of Noah and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, etc. Peter is presuming that his readers are familiar with this. Um, when we get to Jude, Jude does the same thing, and in fact, and I want to get into next time's subject, but if we look at um, verse 7, we're going to see even a Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves to fornication going after strange flesh. We're going to talk about the sin, the, the, the sin and, the, and the subject of Sodom and Gomorrah next time. But what, if you read Jude, the tone of it, in verse 5, he talks about Israel. Verse 6, he talks about the angels that kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation and so forth. And then even as Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. The implication from the language, that Jude, the, the thrust of Jude, uh, Jude's argument, is that the angels did the same thing that they did in Sodom and Gomorrah, namely unnatural sexual perversion. It isn't just that they're fornicating, just having, you know, sex outside of marriage. That isn't the only issue. Sodom and Gomorrah gives rise to all kinds of other things. We'll talk about that next time. But the point is, the, th- the way the language is constructed, the implication is that is the nature of the sin of the angels in verse 6. F- follow what I'm saying? Now, this doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just telling you why I view it so aggressively. I want to, on one hand, let you recognize that there are good scholars that take, would take 
great exception to what I'm presenting here. And they argue the Seth uh, and, you know, kind of idea. But uh, I frankly, this is one of those places where I just really uh, feel personally that the, if you take the scripture in a straightforward manner, it's quite clear uh, what it says. Now, you may wonder, okay, Chuck, that's interesting. It's a little bizarre. It's kind of fun, but it's, uh, what's that got to do with us? Well, several things. At this point, let's summarize lessons, practical lessons for you and I. Well, the first thing is that the Scripture warns against meddling with the spirit world in any way. And I, I uh, did not take the time to really list all of that uh, in detail. In Deuteronomy, all through the Torah, all through the Old Testament, and certainly in the New, we are admonished to flee occultic things of all shapes and sizes. And by the way, I don't know how many of you saw the movie The Exorcist. Anybody see that movie? I'm not trying to recommend the movie, but there's something interesting. If you recall that entire, oh, well, first of all, you should probably know William Blatty based that upon a collection of several case studies amalgamated into a novel. So there's much in the movie that is documentary, documentarily sound. It all starts, though, with what? A Ouija board. A little party game. That's known in the trade as an entry. Do you know what other entries are? Astrology. I want to ask you, how many of you read the astrology com columns in the paper just for fun because it's kind of cute? Watch out. These subtle, innocent little things can lead to an entanglement with the spirit world, an involvement that grows and gets addictive and deepens, whose end point is your destruction. Now, there are many superstitions and such that people had throughout the ages that the Bible doesn't even bother to comment on. These things are not dangerous because they're stupid or because they're just ignorant or what have you. They are malevolent. Behind these innocent little pieces of the foolishness is a demonic spirit whose goal is to undo you and who has at his resources, well, has at his call enormous resources. So you're playing with tough stuff. So that's point one. Jude's point is that punishment, which overtook the angels that sinned, is, he makes that point simply to emphasize the serious nature of apostasy, opposing the truth. Beings of a higher order than you and I, you and I are human, angels were, are a higher order have been hurled down to a dark place of confinement where they, they have been there now for thousands of years. We have no idea what Tartarus is like, but they're there and they've been there for a long time. God has not changed his attitude toward them and time passing has not mitigated the seriousness of their sin. What Jude is drawing on here is that example, which presumably in his mind is in the mind of his readers, to emphasize the point he's making is that apostasy is serious stuff. It's not some little thing that you sort of stumble and say, gee, God, I'm sorry, you know. It's heavy stuff. Now, in 1 Timothy 4.1, we say we might take a look at 1 Timothy. We're going to look at a couple passages. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.1, we looked at it last time, but I want to remind you of this, because it, it, it gives a label to false teaching that I think is worth absorbing. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, he, Paul says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits 
and the doctrines of demons. One of the sobering realizations is that any doctrine, any idea that impacts your life that's not biblically sound has a very malevolent source. Now, some of those doctrines or ideas are so conspicuously anti-biblical that to you and I, they're obvious. And that the prey, they prey primarily on the secular world. The New Age. By the way, some of you, they're old ideas but repackaged in modern technology. The New Age, the whole Shirley MacLaine thing. Sinister stuff. Don't think it's, I can't imagine it being appealing to anyone that has any biblical roots at all. I worry more about a different kind of heresy. I worry more about Christian, near, pseudo-Christian doctrines that are just one degree off. If I'm aboard the ship as a spy and I'm trying to get this ship off course, my shrewdest way is to get the autopilot one degree off because they won't notice it for a while until they're so off course there's no hope. That's exactly what Satan has done also through the ages. There are also demonic doctrines one degree off. What's your protection against that? The whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. Not one chapter, not some little hobby horse, not some little catechism. The whole counsel of God. Genesis 1-1 through the 22nd chapter of Revelation. To try to absorb, as the Holy Spirit gives you opportunity, the whole counsel of God. That's your only uh, a source of balance. Uh, the other dimension of this that I would like to turn to is Ephesians 6. You know, when you come to our, if you come to our house, we happen to have a very uh, English Tudor type of home, and it happens in the entry hall. It fits the decor. We happen to have a suit of armor. A friend of mine arranged for it for me. It's a suit of armor. And everybody says, what's that? You know, think, and I said, well, that's, don't you know who he is? That's Ephesians 6. That's his name. And uh, they, what? You know, if they're Christians, they laugh and chuckle. And what I'm talking about, if they don't, it gives me an excuse to open the Bible and come to Ephesians 6. That's why we call the suit of armor Ephesians 6, because it reminds us of Ephesians 6, starting, oh, say, maybe, well, we start at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Jude, and later in his letter, is going to give an example where Michael the archangel is fighting with Satan and he doesn't bring up railing accusation against Satan. He's smarter than that because he knows he's a dignity. He's an adversary, but he's senior. How are you strong? Not in your own power, but in the Lord. Strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Then he says, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You don't stand a chance by yourself. He's smarter than you. He's had centuries of study. He's got enormous resources and focus. And he's bright. He was the brightest thing around. He was perfect in wisdom. Now, he has a disease called sin, and that corrupts. That's gone on for a while. However, you make a gigantic, there's a gigantic mistake in, in underestimating. That's why you don't fool around in spiritual matters without proper armament. Verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, that's not our problem, gang. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. One of the passages I had in my notes to take you into tonight, but I saw I would overspend my time, is Daniel chapter 10. And just a couple of sentence summary, you can dig it out on yourself. There's where Daniel prays 
And for three weeks he fasts, and after three weeks a messenger comes, but the messenger points out, gee, I was held up for three weeks. And you sort of get the impression, it doesn't say this, you get the impression of Daniel had stopped fasting a day earlier, he might not have made it. But the point is, he describes that he was battling, you know, the, uh, the uh, prince of Persia, right? How he withheld him. But Michael came and helped him, and he got through to give him his message. And then when he's through giving him the vision, he says, by the way, i got to go now because the prince of uh, Greece is next. i got to fight him getting back. You, you, you get the strange shadowy glimpse that behind these governments are spiritual powers. And who is the head of these spiritual powers in the world? Who is the prince of this world? And you begin to realize that there's a warfare you and I don't see. We get a glimpse of that warfare in... Um, there's one interesting place, again, I didn't take the time to take you into it, but you can do it on your own, if I can find my reference here in uh, Kings. Um, 2 Kings 6, uh, there's a place where, um, in Elisha, and uh, they're surrounded, the servants worried and so forth. Elisha looks up, looks at both sides, no problem, those that are with us are more than they are with against him. Show them, Lord. And he sees them surrounded by these angels. What's interesting about that? is you get several glimpses. One is that there are spiritual forces behind what's going on on the earth both ways. When Elijah looked and see, you know, who's the strongest? Hey, we're okay. There's more, than, there's more of ours than theirs. Okay, he went back to sleep. And since we're getting close to time, I want to keep moving. But I'll, I'll show you with you again is, a, is part of these hints the Bible gives us that there's a, a lot going on we don't see. But the hints are very explicit, if you will, in Ephesians. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. By the way, in Daniel 10, we have the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. We get the impression that there's a ruler and his minions over each of these governments. And by the way, the period between Persia and Greece is like 200 years. So their time domain is a little different than ours because their physics are different than ours. Is there a prince of the United States? Sure. Sure there is. And whom does he report? You make a lot of cracks for that one, but you get the idea. Who owns the media in this country? All you have to do is read it and get a good impression of what that's all about. Wherefore, take you, the, Paul says, the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins gir girded about with truth, and having on your breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, which ye shall be able to quench, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, I've heard many people preach, and maybe very correct, that Paul, at the time he was writing, was chained to a Roman soldier. And so, as he was, and of course, you know, he didn't regard himself as chained to the Roman soldier. He just figured the Roman soldier was chained to him, so he witnessed him. But. <laughs> Reminds me of Woody Allen's crack about, you know, hell is what, being stuck in an elevator with a life insurance salesman? And then... So, but, but, but Paul's comments there could be very well, you know, the easy view is that he was looking at the Roman soldier and he, he was building analogies. You were the helmet of salvation and so forth. Except if you look at Isaiah 52, verse 7, you discover that Isaiah apparently was chained to a very similar soldier. Because Isaiah, in chapter 52, verse 7, no, that's not the one I wanted, but uh, it's close. Oh, Missler, you did it again. Feet shot of the pot. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and publisheth salvation and saith unto Zion, God reigneth. 
and that's one of them. You can actually find, if you, you can actually go through and find parallels with each of the, each of those phrases have links back to the Old Testament. That's the one I marked there, and there's some others. Um, I think Isaiah 59, 17 also. But, but moving on, um, the whole idea of spiritual warfare is one of having the spiritual armament. And one of the things that we're admonished by Paul is to put on the whole armor of God. How do you do that? What you might do yourself, because it's a study that you'll get more out of if you do it on your own, is to take Ephesians 6 and lay out each one of those things. And don't treat them as just sort of casual allegories, but really dig into them and build yourself a preparation. If I told you that within the next six months we're going to have guerrilla warfare in the United States, I'm not saying that, I'm just using this as an example. Um, what would you guys do? I'll speak to the guys. Those of you that have had some black belt experience would probably refresh yourselves. Those of you that had small arms would probably get them in shape. You'd have each of you, depending on your responsibilities and skills and whatever, would prepare, wouldn't you? Some way. Some of you would head for the hills with canned goods just hidden away, or you'd do something, right? Preparation means a lot. Well, you and I have some time to prepare. So I'm going to suggest to you that's exactly what you and I should be doing with a sense of urgency that's very, very high. We should be preparing ourselves. Being here in this Bible study is a major piece of it. Uh, letting the Holy Spirit lead you into special studies of your own, a special piece of it. Developing a deep devotional life, prayer life, a big piece of it. Each of you's, uh, for each of you, the syllabus would be probably a little different. The Holy Spirit will lead you. But I do strongly urge you to take Ephesians 6 and prepare. Now, why am I saying that? Well, first of all, it makes sense in terms of your spiritual walking, spiritual growth. But I have another reason. Because there's something else that puts Jude 6 into a terrifying dimension as far as I personally am concerned. And that's something the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said on several occasions, as the days of Noah were, so shall the days of the coming of the Son of Man be. And he gave some examples, several. In fact, he made several allusions to that period, a uh, lot and other things. And we'll talk some about that in, in subsequent um, evenings. But the more we study the days of Noah, the more insight we will probably gain as to the times that will precede the next judgment. Much is made of the fact that he gave Noah a promise that he never again flood the earth and gave him a rainbow. Peter tells us that you should read the small print. He just said he wouldn't do it with water. So God is getting ready to judge the earth again, but there's some events that will occur prior to that period for lots of reasons. We know that period is not far away. But those events that occurred prior to the flood, the days of Noah, are going to happen again. Widespread wickedness, a small minority that um, are in God's grace in the sense of uh, being taken care of. Heavy stuff. Now, we all, all have either seen or heard of a movie called Rosemary's Baby. Piece of entertainment, uh, what have you. Um, but a little bizarre, because if we understand Genesis 6 correctly, and if that's also included in the scope of Christ's statement, as the days of Noah were, we should not be shocked if there's some very, very strange goings-on in the coming decades. I'm not saying next a week from Tuesday, but uh, we're heading for some strange times. Oh, and let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Strange stuff. Um, 
kind of interesting, intrigues the imagination, causes us to look with a little different eye towards some of the strange myths and legends embodied in the various cultures on the planet Earth, but apparently based in effect on real things that happened a long time ago, things that are stranger than we normally would countenance in, in, in our horizon as we understand our history. But relevant to you and I, not just because they're quaint ancient beginnings, but because they have an impact on where you and I are living. Because I am convinced for lots of reasons, some of which we've talked about in the past and some of which we'll be talking about shortly, that we are living in, in that, period, that lifetime, that generation, in which God is going to climax his plan for man. And he's told us a lot about what's coming. What's our job? What's our response to that? And the first response is that we better know that, we're, that we belong to Jesus Christ. If there's anyone in this room that has any doubt in his mind about that, I would strongly urge you to resolve that before you get home tonight. You can do so in the privacy of your own will. As we close our eyes and bow our heads, make a commitment to Jesus Christ and he will carry it from there. He's done 100% of the job. He won't meet you halfway. He'll meet you 100% of the way, if you'll but ask. That's step one, to be in Christ. Second step is to grow by reading his word, by studying, by prayer, by fellowship with other believers. Crucial, more crucial. All of you in this room, all of us in this room, have problems. We have financial problems and pressures, health problems and pressures, all kinds. We get a long list. Whatever problems and pressures we have are Pale and insignificance compared to some of the issues we've talked about tonight. Your spiritual position. I happened to run into some people this weekend, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm known within my business world as a risk taker. I'm, I'm a real hip-shooting, high-leverage maverick kind of guy in business. But I'm fond of pointing out that I do not have the guts, I don't have, I'm not willing to take the risk to gamble like you, Mr. So-and-so. I'm not willing to bet my eternity that the Bible is wrong. That's the real issue. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>